Welcome to the Beyond X podcast. I'm your host, Mahir Ibrahimi, and every week I speak to leading industry experts, trailblazers, and market leaders, where we discuss the key topics of our time in detail and have a deep dive conversation on areas like sustainability, technology, urban planning and city design, health and fitness, and more. In today's episode of Beyond Cities, I spoke with Marlon van Maastricht. The first half of our discussion consisted of topics like smart, sustainable cities and the cities of the future, natural integration and landscape design within cities, the importance of accounting for ongoing behavioral changes in city design, and the impact culture and societal change play and can have on sustainability. In the second half of our discussion, we played around with ideas like city hubs, self-sustaining cities, the future of transportation and mobility within cities, the future of hospitality and tourism, and how envisioning our future cities with diversity and inclusion in mind can foster organic growth and prosperity. The different discussion points are all timestamped throughout the episode, so you can freely move around as you see fit. Marlon is a Saudi and Dubai-based Dutch urbanist with well over two decades of experience in the planning, design, and engineering of our natural and built environment. And he has a particularly deep embedded passion to improve the quality of life on his journey through the development of our cities and their public realm. Marlon's background is in landscape architecture and planning, and he recently extended his toolkit with a master's degree in city sciences to keep up and stay ahead of the curve on his creative quest within the context and application of today's digitized world and the challenges and opportunities of rapidly and infinitely evolving technologies. Martin started the year by joining the Red Sea Global as a director of landscape architecture for design and project delivery, where he found his calling as he shares RSG sustainability pillars and strongly identifies with their motto for people and planet. Martin is a desired and experienced multidisciplinary expert frequently requested as keynote speaker, panelist, and moderator at regional industry events and workgroups, having spent his career living and working in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, and in Saudi Arabia and the UAE since 2008. This is, in fact, how we've met and collaborated on many occasions over the years, so I'm really looking forward to catching up with him and picking his brain on a few hot topics within the industry. So thank you so much, Marlon, for joining us today. Um, Most welcome. Great to finally have you here. Yeah, yeah, I took a minute. Took a minute. I know it's a bit of a pet peeve of yours. The word smart, when it's put in before anything that is technologically advanced, smart city, smart this, smart that. And I think a lot of times people almost confuse the digital side of things with smart. So yeah, it's amazing that we can go on Zoom and Teams and whatever other programs are there. We're very platform agnostic, but whatever programs are there, we can use them to just communicate and chat with each other but that's not really smart that's just that's technology that existed six seven years ago so let's start with definitions what would you consider is just smart technologies like what is smart to you smart cities indeed i find i don't like to use the term for me it's just future cities or future communities Mm -hmm. or just more to the core of what we're trying to do in our profession smart comes closer to the iot of course being generation x having lived through the time where the first mobile phones came into place, where you could play Snake and where there was no WhatsApp, social media coming on, even in our profession from AutoCAD to 3D to BIM. So having lived through that transitional phase or both being part of that generation, 
I think you can appreciate the before and the after and the now. And for me, technology is baseline. You always want to be as smart as possible mm -hmm. because smart is defined as doing things in a better way, right? And technology is always going to continue to evolve. And for us as planners or designers, part of, let's say, urban development or rural development in the widest form or just project development in general, is trying to use all those technologies for the better of both how we do our work and ultimately, obviously, the outcome for the end user, for the planet as well. So in that sense, smart is really back to the devices itself, IoT, the Internet of Things. So everything collects data at the moment. Let's start with the most simplest from your phone. Or, for example, in our project, we have in our core, we have thousands of trackers so mm -hmm. that we can monitor our progress in the Red Sea of our conservation targets mm -hmm. that we have. So where, for example, we have coral farms, we are trying to not just preserve, but regenerate certain species or ecosystems like the reef itself, but also, for example, endangered species like the hawksbill turtle. So we are able to track our progress there. And as from a designer or an architect's point of view, obviously in the most simple form, I would say from going from 2D on paper, being able now to have a 3D model and work on a project in, let's say, 10 different countries mm -hmm. with a team of maybe more than two, 300 people at the time, uh, on a single asset, for example, is amazing because now you can not only just see everything in 3D between the architecture as a design, structure, MEP, all the infra services, and have what we call clash detection. You can also write scenarios in programs to map out the effect of certain things that could be in an aesthetical way, could be in a functional way. And... For example, things like mobility, knowing how much users you're going to have in an asset or in a city, how you can improve, for example, traffic management, big issue, obviously, trying to remove traffic jams, reduce the time that you spend on the road, to now the transition from the resources that we use, like the oil and gas, to electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles to get from A to B. So mm -hmm. technology is basically in everything. So of course, if you would argue on a technological level or a digital level, you I understand that the term smart city came because everything came online and we everything can give you information and we're doing, we can do something with that information. It's not always for the good, sometimes for the bad as well. Yeah, yeah. And it is our duty as planners and designers to to always keep challenging the status quo. Mm -hmm. I think that's in our DNA as planners and designers. That's why we do or chose to do what we do. And it's also our duty as a professional. And when it comes to how we look at the development of communities mm -hmm. or cities or the public realm, I think, again, it's a, a means to an end and always trying to see what the most appropriate and current technology or process is to achieve new objectives and or improve old ones.
we didn't really settle on a definition there when you talked about all the possible things you can do with smart technologies. The it, definition of smart, if you want to go back to what the, the definition of smart, I think I did mention, is to do something better, right? Okay. A smart way is doing is doing things more efficiently mm -hmm. or, for example, when you talk about environment, less damaging or even in regeneration, instead of making an imprint and talking about waste, looking at how we can convert that into something positive, mm -hmm. for example, like green waste into compost, into nutrition to get cradle to cradle as right. we go to the start. So actually that is a process that doesn't even need technology. That's yeah. why I'm always saying a smart city for me is about sustainability it's about user comfort for me I, you're really smart if you can deal with our climate and our weather here we're trying to reduce the average temperature in the hottest month between june and september and still being able to walk outside with the amount of shade or humidity control mm -hmm. and climate control in, in general changing a, a microclimate that makes it more comfortable for us to use when it is 42 degrees outside yeah and you want to walk from your home to the bus stop or to the metro yeah those are day-to-day -day challenges that we have and then trying to not take the car that pollutes but taking another means of transport those are all smart mm. solutions that you could argue are part of trying to create smarter communities, smarter designs. So I think to define it, I don't define a smart city only smarter because it has more technology. Right. A smarter city is smarter in the way it applies technology okay. for the better of its user and its environment. In the most efficient way possible. In the most efficient way possible. Okay. And with the best outcome. Mm-hmm. And that is also economic, it's environmental, it's efficiency, it's quality. And quality has many, many aspects to it. Just the way things work and make them efficient in terms of time, mm -hmm. time consumption, you could argue, is quality, but also the experience. And that's a very big part of things. We, we build cities to work and to live but a big part of life and a happy trend that I see now where the technology itself was the hot topic. Smart cities for me, personally, as you know, indeed one of my pet peeves is because it was largely a technology industry introduced yeah, yeah. term to push product and as urban planners and landscape architects, engineers even were trying to really shift the focus back at the outcome itself and changing the world for a better place. And uh, it's a bit cuddly fuddly, but, but that's but the aim, right? That yeah, is they, the like, aim. Yeah. If you have that in the sort of design stage, if you think about that as a principle, then I think it just sets everything up. Even if it doesn't always end up reaching the top of the pyramid, at least it's there somewhere in the foundations, right? And that's a key factor. Yeah. And some designs are just made to be funky, and cool and that's fine it's also part of a customer experience but personally as a, as a passionate landscape architect and environmental manager also with an interest in technology i don't know i just wake up with a bigger smile if i do something good and right if i work on something 
that I know will benefit the next generation and so on. And that contribute to something. And I love finding that the two do not have to be mutually yeah. exclusive. You can do something funky, crazy, wild, and still achieve sustainability targets and be environmentally responsible. Mm. And and I find that smart too. <laughs> yeah, that makes so, sense. So, yeah, you know, yeah. that's, that's smart too. As designers, per definition, you could argue smart is not just something about intelligence. It's about EQ as well, mm. emotional intelligence through design. That's a really good point because I think when you say smart cities, everyone always thinks about technology, right? Like we were really thinking about the technology because I guess it's a bit more sexy. It, Especially I think from some of the movies we grew up on, right? Like where you see these cool things happening. I won't name movie names, but like futuristic cities where the cars yeah. drive themselves and your interstellar travel is possible and all these things. We think about the technology, but I guess as a designer, really what you need to do is think about the people and the user journey, right? Like how is somebody going to use this design or this plan or this principle? In reality, how is it going to happen? You know that I've used those examples in my keynote sometimes. Mm -hmm. I don't know which exact date, but in the 80s, Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah, yeah. with the self-driving car and Fifth Element, indeed, all these movies, they had visions of technology that now are reality. Mm -hmm. That's also something we have today the what we've dreamed is now a reality and now the goalpost has shifted in ways in scary ways i think i read yesterday that including elon musk and a whole bunch of tech entrepreneurs and scientists have have really urged to slow down on ai yeah because it's getting out of control and going back to the film film example we don't want terminator <laughs> hate to happen that that our technology becomes yeah, self-aware yeah. and things these humans are screwing up the place let's just eliminate the most the biggest danger factor and that's us yeah yeah and it's actually not surreal to think mm. that it no, is it, 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 a, a machine yeah. learning is a computer can outsmart you against smart in in a, in a fraction of a second a million times yeah Forgive me for the exact numbers. No, it's no, scary, but, that's but the thing. Um, and I really <laughs> I don't want to go that direction. But I'm just saying, if we take those '80s examples and we see that's now a reality, where driverless cars or even autonomous flying taxis are something we're going to see within the next five years, whether it's in a demo form or you know it's going to be just for the hyper elite, things are standardizing. The USB example that we had between the floppy disk that we mm. used at school to Jesus. the tiny little USB with two terabytes on it. I feel like 30% of the audience is not going to know what a floppy disk is. but <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is it. Or, like, or a DVD-ROM. <laughs> okay, let's go. Growing up with Legos, we were talking about it off yeah, camp yeah. just now. I grew up with Legos. I grew up with technical Legos. Mm. And then my little nephew... And I think at the time was nine or 10, probably was asking for Christmas to have a remote sensor, remote control sensor for his, for his robotic Legos. And he was programming on an iPad with Python. Yeah. Mind yeah. blown. Yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah, that's also a generational thing. So the young generation that, that was born into this technology, they look at 
us as fossils. But that's the thing, right? It's almost like we were doing things with our hands tied behind our backs and people who are in their 60s and 70s in this industry who were doing things really with their hands and feet and faces yeah. <laughs> tied behind their backs. But it's just what you can do now with so much less effort. Yeah, It just compounds what you can really get out. At the end of the day, it's much more efficient, as we were saying yeah. about the smart stuff. So. It's, and it's all part of evolution. And you also see it's going to go to ends of the spectrum. But I am romantic to the older generation's idea of we didn't have anything. We had to entertain ourselves. Yeah. Hence, we became more creative. You see an equal trend that moves away from technology and says, okay, I'd like to go to a resort where there's no Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. or I'd like to explore maybe a part of cultural history or architecture, whether modern or just being in the moment mm -hmm. or having a conversation like we're having now and sitting down and having a chat versus having a Teams call. Scientifically, there yeah. is a value. There is a different energy when you're sitting at across from each other and there's a place for everything but for me again going back to why I don't like to use the word smart sometimes you need to also disconnect from technology mm -hmm. to connect to one another and that makes the difference between being human being and turning into a robot yeah, yeah. for sure and, and I think that's also a very interesting infinite challenge and opportunity and as a designer and as a planner i'd like to always uh, try to think in solutions not so much in problems and that's always an interesting tug of war if you will between function and aesthetics mm -hmm. and technology but in my opinion it's technology is the baseline we work with what we have mm -hmm. or we try to push the boundaries which is the most interesting sort of spectrum trying to push the boundaries of either existing technology or invent something new. And sometimes, so not to reinvent the wheel, and sometimes to invent the wheel, sometimes also just to do something less than normal, like picking up a pencil and doing an old school sketch versus right. something on an iPad or in BIM 360, a fully automated markup. Everything has its place and its time, and that's it. You mentioned AI. There's implications in design now as well, right? Where you can tell, not ChatGPT, but similar software. Okay, I want this and this in a concept. So I want a fully sustainable city that's going to have fully mobility and a lot of native plants and all of these things. Design this for me and it can try to do that. Obviously, it won't be as effective as, at least at the moment, right? As a, well, as a, yeah. as a person designing it. So, I mean, to jump into that maybe, what do you think are the shortcomings, let's say, of our current cities that technology isn't addressing, but it could maybe, like you said, maybe we need to reinvent some things, especially when we're talking about the people, right? Like, how is it impacting people? What is missing at the moment? I think, first of all, obviously, I'm already biased because I'm a landscape architect, but if I try to be as objective as possible within our Gulf context, but basically within any context, because where we deal with the hot season mm -hmm. versus the, let's say, usable season and trying to stretch that season as long as possible to make things comfortable actually has very little to do with technology. We can utilize technology for it, but usually planting some trees, okay. as simple as that, 
And of course, we can loop in the technology into the conversation, for example, with subsoil drainage in order to minimize evaporation and have have that tree drink as a, a waste as little drink water or water as it possibly can. There are certain things that w- that really come down to the basics as well. And if you think about the city fabric as a place where we either live or work or visit, it's going to be always one of the three, where we all have to use the same public domain to get from A to B or to spend time. The public domain itself, yes, technology is going to help us, for example, move, let's say, it's a huge step already to move from petrol-based transport to electric. Fantastic. But for us to walk outside, even on that electric scooter or on that electric bicycle that still doesn't do anything for your health, <laughs> but gets you from A to B exposed outside is shading, is yeah, trying to influence the microclimate. So what can we do better? I think in a lot of cities in the Middle East are younger from its conception. If you look at Dubai, it's, let's say, started only in the last three decades with public transport. Mm-hmm. And obviously the key drivers in the beginning is healthcare, is transport, is economy, tourism and destinations. And then the actual fabric right. will catch up. And it's very logical and normal that the primary infrastructure will go first. Now, with the technology at hand, we can fast track. And you see, probably if you put this into a graph, you can see that it's exponentially growing. Yeah, we cannot discount the human factor in that. It's the attitude of of the regional and the will and the drive of the regional leadership and its locals, whether you're in Saudi or in the Emirates or in any of the Gulf countries, to drive and propel their countries forward is also as important as the technology itself. It's mm-hmm. it's utilizing that technology, as we said earlier on, for the greater good. And within our cities, what can go what we have to manage is to always keep the focus in the right place. So we are uh, a referee, if you will, or a facilitator to make sure again that the technology is a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And the big corporations are always going to push product, which is great. Competition in that breeds innovation. And it's then for us to take that innovation and have it serve both us as human beings and nature and the planet in general. Yeah, sorry. It's part of our, it's the Red Sea has it for people and planet. And I think, and this is one of the reasons why I joined the Red Sea Global as well. To have that as your center pillar is for me the core and the essence and driver for everything that we do professionally mm-hmm. and even personally. I think many designers or architects or planners will tell you that this is like a chosen destiny. It's more than just your day to, we don't punch in and punch out. Yeah, We live that when we go on holiday, when we spend our time, the way we the way we design our houses or our little terrace where we recreate in the weekends or places we visit. It's part of our DNA and so is it with mine. And I find technology very exciting. And at the same time, yeah, I'm a little bit on the fence. I love to do things old school way. I guess that's a generational thing, probably. I think it's an 
mindset thing more than the generational one. But yeah, I get what you mean, though. Maybe it's a Dutch thing, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, I wouldn't... Yeah, okay. We've invented the polar model, which as a sub-explanation is making a meeting about a committee. <laughs> I have to say I've, that a lot of my colleagues uh, or my friends are quite the opposite of that. We'd like to do instead of, let's say, walk the walk, not just talk the talk, so... Or bike the bike. <laughs> bike the bike, exactly. Indeed, indeed, yeah. You touched on some of the health benefits of landscape. I think one of the things I really noticed myself during COVID was, I mean, I, for your industry, it was a bit different, but for ours, events weren't really happening. Not a lot was happening. So we were figuring things out for the first couple of months, and it gave people a lot of time to just venture into the unknown and see what's happening. And what gave me that sort of clarity of mind and calm was just being in nature, just going on the balcony and looking at the greenery or going in a park and just going for a walk, which was the only time you were allowed to remove your yeah. mask was in, in parks and whatnot so you could exercise. It, it just does this thing where it's not the health benefits in the normal sense that we talk about, but the mental health benefits of just calming and clarity of mind and just lifting that cloud. So I'm really curious, both in the perspective of someone who is doing landscape design for upcoming cities. But really, when you go into existing cities and not just in the Gulf, let's say like in London or Amsterdam, what are the important concepts to keep in mind? Like how can we look at nature, natural integration, and especially horticulture when it comes to these kind of things, when it comes to designing for health and mental health? I think it's a very nice point and a good point because I experienced the same. I would say on a professional level during the COVID, we were forced from... Um, our digital transformation, as we call it, was accelerated massively. We had to go on Teams, on Zoom. It allowed some of the, let's say, more traditional companies, it forced them uh, to think globally. So it opened up a lot of doors at the same time. And you're right. I think the, the fact that we were so disconnected on a human level with the masks and the social distancing also created an urge back to human connection yeah. and to social connectivity and to mental health indeed and i would say that no i would say it is it's scientifically proven nature has a positive effect we need exercise biologically we need oxygen in our blood and in our veins to function as a human being but also stress hormones literally and can physically bring you down so depression trauma or just the downside of being unhealthy, diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, heart. It is our duty when you look at how we plan our cities. I think COVID has amplified and I think everybody has like, ah, finally, we can just sit down like we're doing now. We can have a chat. And we do look for that human connection more. And we look indeed, like you said, to go out in nature and to have fresh air and to be inspired for us and for our cities to have our environment high up the agenda is our duty. We're using up the planet fast and I don't want to put a Greenpeace hat on and I don't have to. The, the facts are there. Global warming is there. The impacts of it are very much known. Let's say even five years, 10 years. We have a moon base and we can go to Mars. I don't think we're going to live to see the day 
We're going to walk into a forest on a different planet yet. Maybe our children, maybe our grandchildren. However, I don't like to think on the basis that this is a requirement because we screwed up our planet yeah. and we have nowhere else to go. And I think it's unnecessary. We are finding that we can coexist, that we can work with nature instead of against it. it was very nice, uh, a quote by Mr. Attenborough, which our Scott Hanshaw uh, presented internally on a webinar for one of our projects. It's very, it's key. So I really get energized and I feel it's also my duty as a professional, but also socially to take everything that I've learned and that I'm still learning and use it for the better good, for improving our living conditions. And yeah, also uh, making cool things, but cool things that are responsible, that give back to nature. And I get a kick out of that, mm -hmm. to be honest, to do something funky and still have it be uh, net positive. Right. Like what we're trying to achieve and what we're going to achieve, I think we're going to shatter the target, is 30% conservation benefit by 2040. And it's amazing that you can that we can do that and very privileged that I can be a part of that, especially as a landscape architect. Break that down for me. What does that mean in layman's terms, 30% conservation? Okay. So I work for the Red Sea Global. The two known projects of that are the Red Sea Development, mm -hmm. which is 500 kilometer above Jeddah. And then 200 kilometer further north is Amale. Both these projects combined are 32,000 hectare for reference that is bigger than Belgium. So we have, we've taken a very large portion over 260 plus 68, I think, a kilometer of coastline. And we're developing both on land and in the ocean. We're developing a tourist destination. The focus of it is to have not just a minimum imprint and building there with minimum impact on nature, for example, by having off-site manufacturing. As you may know, Shebara Island is done by UAE's Killer Design, are these stainless steel pods that are manufactured off-site and now are being installed so that the interface between that completely self-sustainable hotel room, if you will, is just being brought in and put on site with minimum damage and minimum impact. And we go further. For every mangrove tree that we damage during construction, we grow three back. We have a nursery that is now the biggest nursery in the Middle East that has over 9 million plants. Wow. And just growing your own plants, you can control the water consumption, you can use the organic waste and get it back into the cycle of composting it, fertilizing it, using it for your own, to the logistics of growing the plants closest to site as possible and having less transportation costs and all these things combined. And I can really, I can go on for hours, but the entire Red Sea development, the Red Sea global portfolio is completely net zero in terms of energy consumption. For example, our airport and our developments are going to be 100% reliant on a solar farm that we've built, which is the biggest battery in the world, literally having 
people come in and take electric vehicles to their respective resort units or mm -hmm. hotel rooms. So being completely carbon neutral and being able to not just preserve, but regenerate coral reef, reintroduce species that are uh, endangered, like the hawksbill turtle, their nesting grounds, is amazing. It's really exhilarating. And to give you an example, the Red Sea has 92 islands. We are only developing 20 of those, which is 30%. But in total, of that area of 28,000 for the Red Sea, we're only developing 1%. Wow. 1%. So the rest would be immersed into... The rest we are is the natural experience. So we have the mountain ranges mm -hmm. with ancient historical sites. We have obviously that transition towards the dune landscape, like the southern dunes is one of the first assets that's going to come online that's going to be open this year. It's going to be a, a Ritz-Carlton mm -hmm. hotel with uh, a, a completely immersed dune landscape approach. So you have Desert Rock is one of the hotels, literally as part of the mountain. And then you have the islands itself with the underwater and above water experience. So it's an amazing tourist generation that has reinvented touristic destination development by adding versus destroying, say. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. I want to touch more on this, but I think before we move on to new developments, new cities, future sure. cities, I want to kind of go full circle on existing cities, especially, I think the Middle East is a great example of cool things you can do with when you have the finances, the people, and the technology to push things forward. But when you are talking about other metropolitan areas, say London, Amsterdam, where you're more limited by what you can build outwards, obviously, and what you can do inwards, because a lot of times you can't really go out of no. London continuously and just keep expanding the metropolitan area. It's already There's already things there. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? If you want to incorporate more natural integration, if you want to just incorporate more interesting designs, what are some things that can be done into existing cities outside of just building new things? London and Amsterdam are very good examples where the city centers are made car-free mm -hmm. to the dismay of some of the taxi drivers mm -hmm. who are now forced to switch to hybrid, like the London cabs are going to be completely hybrid already mm -hmm. and eventually electric. So, of course, the public transport is one of the controllable things. Private transport is another. For example, the taxes on private cars in increasing categories of weight and size and pollution are astronomical. Mm -hmm. So governments are helping, almost forcing people to consider switching to electric vehicles uh, by, for example, it's carrot and stick, subsidizing, let's say, buying a Tesla versus mm -hmm. an SUV that runs on diesel. You're going to pay a fortune for the latter, and you're going to be able to deduct, for example, from your taxes, the Tesla. And these are sort of policy tools that are very strong and instrumental that I would say have a little bit of longer lifespan or maybe have been tested longer. Mm. Like, for example, the underground in London and the tram system in Amsterdam are there for decennia. So these are things that we can learn from and that we can take away. We are. Uh, Dubai and even whether you go to Qatar or I think the Middle East is very much tapped into 
the global scene and the global comparison. So mm -hmm. I would say that one of those aspects, let's say, of mobility is something that we're doing very well. And let's say we're further advanced in dealing with that. Indeed, smaller, a country like Holland, where you have 17 million inhabitants on a space which, for example, Saudi is 23 million, I believe right. now, uh, which is the size of Europe. If you look at that level of density, it also forces us to make indeed smarter solutions to deal with that kind of density. And, you know, if you come to Holland or you come to London, it's still very green. It's still, the cities are very much green. Trees are a prerequisite and public green and biophilic design within the urban fabric are the norm, are the baseline. So I think having that embedded in policy so that it doesn't become a matter of political agenda, mm -hmm. but more like something that is regionally or nationally trickled down. For example, in Holland, you have a national plan, then the provinces will take that over, which gets trickled down to municipal policy. I think that's something that we in the Middle East, we can still take away further. For example, in Abu Dhabi with the public realm development guidelines, you're just not going to get a building permit if you do not have these goals. And for example, we're going to have 75 hotels across the Red Sea portfolio. Every single operator that signs on, signs their our commitment to sustainability. Mm -hmm. When we make these big, bold statements, it's not just something trendy. No, we... we You're being held accountable. We are held accountable and we hold people that associate themselves with us also accountable mm -hmm. to contribute. So when it comes to development in general, whether it's urban, rural, touristic, recreational, mobility, in all aspects of planning, policy transform is a very big topic that you will find in each society sit on a different level. Outside of policy, what else do you think is important? So. Obviously, I think from everything you said, whether it's transportation, whether it's planning, whether it's just sustainability as a whole, policy plays a large part, and I completely agree with that. But what else? Can people really make a big difference? Can the design principles themselves, especially, again, for both existing and future cities, can they play a key role too? Yeah, I would say culture. Okay. So, yes, the people, you're right. Policy is an instrument that is used by people. I mean, if we take the AI off the table and assume <laughs> that people are going to be running the show for for a while longer. <laughs> yeah, assuming that we're still in control. Um, for example, we've seen it here in the deserts, in any of the Gulf, the wasteful culture going and going desert camping and just leaving all the rubbish yeah. behind and in the ocean. Yeah. It's a disgrace, and I'm very glad that initiatives like Zero Plastic are coming in, but they can't come fast enough. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that we're not doing it, but in my opinion, we're never doing enough. And what really helps is education, and education from a young age. So as a landscape architect, for example, educational playgrounds that suit 
the theme of our developments. Our developments are fully nature-based mm -hmm. and nature-driven, whether it's with funky architectural or not. No, you're still there to go on this journey and to experience whether it's uh, the coral or swimming or water sports or kayaking in the mangroves or climbing mountains. You're there to experience something. So to instill an appreciation and a respect for nature from an early age has to do with exposing people to what we're doing, which is on a positive level, but also the negative. And again, we like to focus on the positive by leading by example. But it is important that we are accountable for what we do. And that takes a cultural shift of which I think we're still in a very early stage in the Middle East. For example, separating your domestic waste is something that I can remember since I was a child. Maybe I, I think as far back as my teens, we had a gray and a green and a yellow container and a little glass box. We're talking what, 90s? Yeah, so this early 90s. And now we're doing that. We're adopting that. But we still have a long ways mm -hmm. to go. In the hotels, the waste, uh, those buffets, the brunches. But let's say that you have a buffet where you pay an amount of money for three hours where you can eat all you can. So all. much food waste. Yeah, no, it's so true. I always think about it in a very basic way. The amount of money they're wasting because of not planning it correctly is, it has to be a, a factor, right? Because that's how you convince businesses. But the sheer wastage of tons and tons of food. Even if you take a, another segue back into the technology, unless you're really well off, nobody can afford a brunch here without using the entertainer or Groupon or whatever yeah. app you're using to get the buy one, get one free. There's data created through that because the price is fixed of the buffet, for example. And also the amount of packs that go into a venue is also something fixed. So you're right, that data, this is a very good example where we have the technology that we can see how much wastage there yeah. is on each type of consumption. And I appreciate, for example, in some of the assets where you have an a la carte, mm -hmm. whatever you want with certain choices of dishes. And there is such a wide offering here that whether you're more the vegan type or the carnivore or, you know, more the eco type or uh, the gluttonous one, you can satisfy yourself and we can calculate more in detail when you do a certain amount of courses. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the examples where I do feel that we can utilize technology for the better. It's happening. I'm not saying it's not happening. But when it comes to how much damage we're causing and, for example, food wastage versus how much we're doing mm -hmm. in terms of utilizing that technology, I think we still have a long ways to go. Fair, okay. Yeah. So anyone who wants to be environmentally sustainable cannot go to buffets anymore. That's that's a note that we're going to put. Don't just recycle. Also, don't go to buffets. <laughs> yeah, 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 to an extent. I don't want to be a party pooper. Either. No, no, but I, but I think it makes perfect sense. Le, le, yeah, let's, you know, there's always extremes. I think, again, going back to culture, Yeah. I think the way that you raise your children or the way that you 
think as groups, maybe people that you associate with, you can already making a difference. Indeed, let's say if we were to meet up on a personal level and we go out with a couple of couples to say, okay, let's support this local cafe, which is done purely with produce that's grown in the UAE or in Saudi, farm to table versus going to a buffet. Yeah, then I personally feel good afterwards. I do. And this is not, again, I'm not wearing sandals, as you can (laughs) see, or singing Kumbaya with the guitar. No, this is something that you do have control over, Mm. and it has a massive impact. And maybe because I have an environmental background and because I'm a landscape architect, I care for it more. But yeah, I don't know. I think that's something that we still have a long ways to go. And I find it a bit more entrenched, and this is normal, but we're in a first world country. I don't want to label by how much money you have to spend, although I do feel that the more money you have to spend, the more responsibility you have. Unfortunately, reality is usually the other way around. But let's say versus a third world country where you're just fighting for a clean drop of water versus a first world country, which all of these countries are, I think that the big objectives in terms of growth, number one, is our duty to the planet and is our duty to future generations. And in that sense, we have a duty to to instill better values in our children and to lead by example as individuals and human beings and definitely as professionals because we're, we're having a podcast now for our industry, within our industry. And I doubt you'll find an architect or a planner or even an engineer that is completely screw the context. And I'm just gonna, we were talking about it earlier, just tarmat this park and build a yeah, parking yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. I think if you can do things the right way, it doesn't mean that you have to do things boringly. You can do funky, funky things in an environmentally responsible way. And that's the sweet spot. That's in terms of culture, mentality, the way we approach things. And yeah, I feel that where I'm at now in life and in in my career and being associated with Red Sea, I am where I'm supposed to be. Every single detail that we're doing we're trying to work towards those kind of objectives. And that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. I think we've gone full circle on existing cities. So let's talk smart cities, or as I know you prefer to think of them, cities of the future. I just just said the word smart cities, get those tag words out of the way. Future cities. Future cities. Fine. So, because I think for me, one of the key distinctions, a lot of times we're thinking when you say to someone, you say future cities or city the of the distant future. future. Yeah, yeah. And that's the concept, right? Okay. And a lot of times people actually say, oh, but that's a city that's going to be built from scratch, right? I think this is a distinction that I see a lot of times. That's why it was important to define certain characteristics. Because when you say smart cities, if you look at India, right? A lot of times I spoke to some experts that are working in some of the municipalities there and they're like, To us, smart sometimes means like smart waste management. We want to be the best at waste management because that's the challenge we face. Whereas smart in Amsterdam, for example, it's all about mobility, right? It's about how do you maximize sustainable mobility? 
how to do this. In London, I think it's considered one of the most secure cities in terms of it's the most CCTV covered per capita or per square meters yeah. city in the world. Yeah. So maybe smart security is the most important factor there. And I think it's almost, we talk about smart cities, but really we're talking about smart functions within a city's framework. I'm very happy that you still went full circle because I think we're on the same frequency now. <laughs> because in the end, it's the commitment towards progress and utilizing technology. Yeah, I, okay, I get it. When you say future cities, you could think from 10 years onwards or something like that. And at the same time, I find digital city, you can associate more with the metaverse exactly, yeah, or yeah, NFTs yeah. or that's, that's where it goes. that kind of things. So I think sustainable development and sustainable cities was one of those trend words as mm -hmm. well in the early 2000s. But I think maybe that's still the most appropriate and the most adequate because sustainable development by definition means doing it in a responsible way with the least amount of damage. And yes, in smart ways or in better ways, more responsible ways. And I just want to take the focus off the technological side because for me it's the baseline. It's just a tool that kind of enables... It is, yeah, it is. And you are right. If my objective is to create a better world, if my objective is to create a more enjoyable world mm -hmm. even, or more sustainable, to the least less environmentally damaging, like you said, waste management, it goes way beyond all those aspects like mobility or just how we live and how we build. Keeping up to date with technology mm -hmm. and utilizing that for that higher purpose. I don't think we need a trend name for that because the trend names uh, will continue to evolve yeah. and it's largely commercially driven. But yeah, for me, sustainable development is a duty we have. And maybe innovation is one of those key words that is also important because finding new and better ways to do things by definition is innovation, mm -hmm. is instrumental to creating a better place. Uh, Okay, so when you say, when I mention the concept of cities of the future, or better yet, if you were to imagine any given city 20, 30 years from now, so really we are stepping away from current. Okay. Let's say Amsterdam, for instance, 30 years from now, how do you see it being significantly different? In what characteristics, in what aspects would you say a city like Amsterdam would be different right now to 30 years from now? I would say... This is actually nice. Yeah. But I, I think you should, because I'm Dutch and I'm biased, you should take another city. Because <laughs> we, we already ride bikes. We already, <laughs> you know, if you look on the environmental scale, we're performing quite well. So in 20, 30 years, I imagine ways of transport will change. Let's say that all the taxis are becoming autonomous. I don't, honestly, I don't think we'll see flying taxis very soon. Okay. I find... Dutch to be too humble. I, <laughs> I find that a little bit more flexy, mm. suiting Las Vegas in the Middle East. And, you know, like it's, <laughs> LA it's, for it's sure. more for the rich. LA, yeah. like. I'll tell you why I mentioned Amsterdam because of exactly that. Sustainably, it's in the right context. The right policies are in place. And in 20 years, I think combustion engines will be out loud in Amsterdam specifically. I don't know. My yeah. timeline might be wrong. But so that's the thing. Culturally, people are much more sustainable. So that's yeah. the, I want to use that as an example, okay. because if that's where they are now, 
is that the ceiling? Have they reached it? Like in no, much so that- if my 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 country, <laughs> uh, because I've not lived in my country for most of my life, but if the Dutch are doing it correctly, you are actually absolutely right. Then our arc should not plateau, but we obviously have a, a different type of arc than a country that still has bigger mm-hmm. battles to win. I would say that if you sure hundred percent using natural resources gone maybe it's not just electrical maybe it's hydrogen engines and Mm -hmm. all that so let's say i mean now if you look at the amount of electric vehicles per capita is already very high in a lot of european countries not just i think scandinavians are also way ahead of the pack Mm -hmm. but that means those are actually the very obvious changes already i see a trend amongst the Dutchies, but also I would say in Europe, um, indeed, to just be more sustainable already for a much longer period. Mm-hmm. Thinking back, I, like I said, the separate waste management, composting, all that stuff is not a hippie thing or something. It's part of our fabric already. So technology is going to stay technology. Okay, if Elon Musk is going to implant neural links then okay, surely we will not have any cards on us anymore. I'm hardly using them myself now. Everything is by phone. Let's say that by that time, maybe it will be a watch or what we saw in, I believe it was Sweden or one of the Scandinavian countries, they have a little chip that is the size of a rice grain that does everything already for you, that has your ID on it, Uh, banking, you name it. So... If you pass the supermarket, beep, it's just with your wrist. I can imagine that technology will continue to develop in such ways. Yeah, it makes me proud to say that probably, let's say the region here will have some catching up to do and that in Holland, I wouldn't see that much change because we already have two and a half bicycles per Dutch Half of them in the canals, yeah. but it's a, it's a joke still. that's been told before. But still, yeah. and the same goes for our public transport system. Trains and trams in a lesser amount, but train, there's almost a train station, not just in the, in the cities, in every village in Holland. Mm. So if you look at the public transport system, including then indeed maybe in 10 years, all buses will be electric and all taxis. So, yeah, we will have no more uh, natural resources being used. Holland was already famous for its windmills. Now we have wind farms. We're already pretty much ahead of the game in that sense. So... Do you think the trend of biking will stay when, for example, you have self-driving cars that are fully electric and have ideally by then, by 30 years from now, no natural footprints, no negative footprint, let's say? Would we still be biking? I mean, if the car can drive us and then go sit in a car silo and automatically park itself where you don't even need to do anything, it's like you're ordering your car as an Uber? No, you, uh, I think this again comes back to the point that we discussed earlier, culture. Mm-hmm. Our prime minister, Mr. Rutte, he goes to the cabinet on his bicycle. Right. Talk about the UK. I'm a Manchester United fan. Oh, God. Our don't start. Eric- <laughs> Our area, but Eric Ten Hag, a Dutch coach, and you see pictures of him in Manchester cycling to the stadium to Old Trafford. That's just that's who you are. And right. I wouldn't be able to change it myself. Yes, I've 
become a, a bit of a nomad and I drive my car everywhere. I do have a bicycle that's collecting dust, to be <laughs> very honest with you. And rust now. <laughs> and rust now and I haven't used for maybe three years. Jesus. But I'm working 60, 70 hour weeks. Uh, not that that should be an excuse. But that's kind of my point, right? So let's say the work culture changes, whatever else changes. And is the biking itself a big part of the culture or is it the simple fact that, okay, it's more sustainable? It's like if you could bike without biking, if you just get inside a car, any car can come pick you up and you don't have to think about it. Is that going to change? Because right now we have everywhere outside of Amsterdam, I would say, cities that are really focused more on road development and how we move these forward. If you're talking about <clears> a city like Amsterdam where there's a lot more about the walkability and cyclability of the city. If in 10 years you make it much more accessible for bicycles, but then self-driving cars are going to become the next big no. thing. So you just don't see that happening. No, I think it's very nice to also give uh, some local credit. Mm -hmm. The fact that Sharjah has adopted a four-day working week mm -hmm. um, and has statistically now proven that the efficiency actually has gone up, the productivity has gone up, is something that was already part of Dutch culture the, uh, and Western culture, having a three-day weekend in order to have the work-life balance. I mean, I have a four-month-old baby and these things matter and yeah. these become increasingly more important. And, and the fact that you have that in Sharjah and that things like paternity leave are becoming part of the vocabulary and that even... And I'm not talking just on government level, but that is starting to become part of the conversation at consultancy level is amazing. Of course, we still have ways to go there. Mm -hmm. The fact that is here and that it's as a test, it's worked and uh, is, is a very positive sign to your question that we will ride less bikes. No, there's a trend even here mm -hmm. to more pedestrian friendly areas, to more outdoor space, stretching right. that winter season. If you look at the events that we have here locally from the, the food trucky, everything becomes more pedestrian. We prefer now to have a little ripe market with a couple right. of food trucks versus that buffet that we talked about. And yes, maybe the COVID had a positive effect on that. We have become more pedestrian, if that makes sense. I think globally we have become more pedestrian. I think the trends now is starting to shift from indeed that smart city being overwhelmed by the pace and the possibilities of technology. That's starting to quiet down now. It's, it's becoming more normal that we have a smartwatch or whatever, all these things. And it becomes more health and mental health, physical health, work-life balance, Working to live, not living to work, right. is becoming an, a more important part of the global conversation. And I'm very happy that, that this is something that we're experiencing in a, in a weird way. Maybe COVID played a positive role on that. That's something that so many people have said, especially about our outlooks and how we touch on natural integration. It's one of the things we talked about earlier. COVID made a lot of people realize, oh, I need to be social with people. I need to yeah. see nature. I need to do certain things. And no, it's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's also smart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think COVID definitely made us smarter, yeah. <laughs> even if it, in some ways it made us 
stupid afterwards. But yeah, it's... No, it's very normal. If you want to circle back to technology, yes, the fact that I have an app on my phone that says, oh, there was an upward trend in the last five weeks. You did, I don't know, it was, I think when I was still in consultancy, I was doing 3,000 steps a day. And now it's gone already upwards to 5,000. And my phone is telling me that. My health app is telling me that's using technology for the better. That's such a good point. And especially the health apps, smartwatches that measure your steps. I think people don't realize it. Stress levels. That's so true. Yeah. yeah, As your heart beats uh, Heart rate. People really don't realize it. Just being, I mean, and it doesn't have to be walking specifically, but being for about 90 minutes of low intensity anything a day is yeah. so useful and for me personally I definitely make sure I hit nine to ten thousand steps a day as much as I can and I try to spread it out and that's just good for your health it's yeah. good for your mental health it's good for your productivity Absolutely. because that's when you're the most productive okay I want to touch on city hubs I think we've talked about this a couple times I remember the first time I had a conversation with someone from Virgin Hyperloop when it was still considered for domestic travel and what he was saying is our envisioning of intercity travel, especially as it relates to, say, Europe, where you can have an hour and a half train ride to somewhere, or you can have a 45-minute or 30-minute airplane ride. But what ends up happening is you have to get to the airport, which is usually 20 minutes out of the city. You have to get back from that airport to the main hub of the other city. You have your check-in, your luggage, all this shebang, which ends up being air travel is two hours and 30 minutes. And the train travel is maybe an hour and a half, hour, yeah. 45 minutes at the most, even if it's two hours. It, the experience of a train ride is very different. So I want to first talk about city hubs. We should talk about transportation in general, but I want to talk about city hubs. So one of the concepts he gave me was, he said, what we're going to see happening in the new future is you're going to have sort of a hub where you will go to work, a hub where you will go to live, a hub where you will socialize, and these will be interconnected. It doesn't need to be just these three things. But outside of this, you will not really ever be outside of these hubs unless you're going to, say, a natural reserve, you're going to somewhere that requires you being outside of the normal routine of a weekly life, right? So maybe you want to go traveling with your family and friends to a resort or you want to go doing something else. So outside of that, you're living in these hubs and you never need to essentially leave this hub. Everything you want to do is within a two, three kilometer distance and you go hub to hub to see someone who's in another hub for whatever reason, but most people live in these hubs. What is your thought? I see you're smiling. So what is your thought in this concept? How do you think it comes into reality, especially with cities? Sounds like jail to me. <laughs> really? It sounds like jail to me. Why? It's and I, and I, guess, I guess if you look, for example, when you went to college, like mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends that still live in the same region. In my, It was called Arnhem. Some move to bigger cities and I guess there is a sense of that. But in urban planning, we call it also network cities and it's not a new concept. But for me personally, I love both the hustle and bustle of the city and I love the rural, suburban, maximum two, three stories high kind of um, communities with town centers quite conventionally and you see it coming here it was missing for example dubai was a largely master developer built city right so you have very nice communities that have their own little town center and that you could consider for example arabian ranches is a self-sufficient hub right 
and a lot of those uh, are. And then the coastline is, uh, you know, your old Jumeirah is more like your normal, uh, quote-unquote, urban fabric. Now, when you start clustering, I get it from a functional perspective, but taking out the diversity and the mixture between different functions sounds like jail to me. Okay. So I love the most any city or any community where I can look out the window and I see a little town plaza or a park and I can see a mother with a stroller or I can see people on a bicycle coming by. I think cities or communities in general that have the right mix, of course, you're always going to have, let's say, a central business district. When we talk about hubs, I do strongly believe in transport-oriented development. Mm -hmm. These are hubs. These are park and rides, for example. And even if we take natural resources like gas and oil completely out of the equation and everything is going to be electric or hydrogen and, let's say, more sustainable you're still going to have to have a place to park the car or everybody is going to use public transport, meaning that that autonomous vehicle is going to pick you up, loop into a chain and brings you somewhere. I think a lot of people would consider that jail already because I want to be able to get in my car and drive, whether it's an electric one or not, but I want to be able to say at 11 o'clock or let's say even in my work with meetings all over the planet, like literally I have teams in London, in America, everywhere, in different time zones, my schedule is not a normal nine to five. Right. So if I got up at six in the morning and I had my breakfast at seven, seven thirty, I am hungry at eleven or you know, and I want to be able to just walk out and get a sandwich or drive somewhere. And have that flexibility and control over your agenda. So I think that the more we became connected, in some aspects we became disconnected. We mm -hmm. talked about that before. If everything is doable through WhatsApp, we have to we have to be very careful that we don't live through our devices. So switching off and having a decent meal to sit down and having a chat, whether it's in a coffee break or going for a run for me is very important personally that any community or any development that we have has that diversity in it okay for me trying to categorize it is not dangerous i would say but i think you run the risk that people will get bored with the okay. place so that you get like a factory town or a corporate town okay. where everybody wears a suit and a tie. And after a while, you feel like you're just like a puppet. So I, I need that expressive, creative side and that mixture of cultures and people and feeling, making my working place as homey as possible, mm -hmm. which is also a trend. We talked about yeah, work-life yeah. balance. Having people have now stand-up stand up meeting rooms, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like that. Such or, an awesome idea. Or informal, um, uh, like your cafeteria is more with a barista and then uh, you have a salad bar and things like that. Our own offices have that where you can you can eat healthy. So they promote eating healthy, but they also promote making sure that you don't work or sit behind your screen for mm -hmm. an extended amount of time. And we have Movement Monday at work, for example, where you can all just join in. And so for me... 
again, coming back, I get that you want functionality in your city. I get that there'll be areas within your city that are perhaps more recreational. I don't want to even call it touristical because the two are usually overlaying. But take a park or a playground or your local supermarket out of your residential area. You take life out. But I mean, you would keep that in there, right? There's no reason to not have, for example, the things that you consider to be functionally important. So a cafe would still exist in, in any of those constructs and a playground would definitely have to be in your residential area, right? I wouldn't consider that to be recreational for, for kids, right? Like they need to have a means to play. So maybe it's more about, okay, what do you consider to be integral and what do you consider to be recreational? But you could also look at a different model, which is you have everything in one hub and you have different hubs where I will pretty much never leave this hub because my job is here, my house is here, my food place is here, my recreational facilities are here, my gym is here. And it goes into the model of, okay, again, I know, imagine <laughs> this, maybe you won't want it with a four month old, but imagine this, you could go home every lunch hour because your house is five minutes away from your office. And you go five minutes, have lunch with your wife and your kid, you see everything, you do whatever you're going to do, you go back to work and you never spend more than five to 10 minutes of your day in daily transportation because everything is in walkable distance. Okay. I get it. No, I get it. But community is important. So you're an event. So you would be in a different hub. Mm -hmm. I'm the landscape guy. I would be in the landscape hub. Where's our interaction? Because I don't need to see you anymore because I have my own hub with my own like-minded people. Yeah, but isn't the fact that we're sitting now down to this podcast because we we interfaced a couple right. and it resulted into uh, an interesting conversation is the fact that, okay, we have some interfaces. Mm -hmm. You have an interest clearly in our profession. That's why your events were always centered around urban planning and, and the urban fabric but your background is completely different. So if you would create hubs, which in a way we have, we're in production city right now, right? Sure. But, but if you would live here You're five still categorizing away, though. Why, why would it have to be by function? I'm not saying put all the urban designers in one hub. No, I'm, I'm exaggerating on purpose. I know, right? but I get it. But I mean, I guess the question I would ask you is what would be the ideal way to divide people and things? Is it just based on, okay, this is the place that costs X amount. So the corporates, tech companies and metas and the Microsofts will go here. This is a cheaper one. This is a cheaper. So you just segregate it by price and quality or do you segregate it by function like you were suggesting? Or it could be by anything else, right? Maybe this is the water side because, you know, you're building these cities into whatever existing infrastructure is there. So this is the water side of town, like the Jumeirah, and this is the green side of town. And functionally, clustering is always going to happen mm -hmm. because it is very, like indeed, like you have Media City here, certain corporations are there. And yes, you are right. There are hotels there. There are recreational areas there. It's fine. But I feel that is, it is not different than any normal community would have. Any city that is self-sufficient We'll have a bit more corporate area. We'll have more residential areas. We'll have more community areas. That is nothing new to me. But when you start indeed categorizing it too much, and I think that's where maybe I get triggered a little bit, 
you're taking some of the excitement out mm -hmm. and the diversity out. And for me, it's dangerous because let's say if we would do it functionally, put all the tech companies together, to get the best seat in the house would be the company with the most money. What happens is that the backside of that is the cheaper guys that cannot afford it. There will not be as much money spent into those backside and you get very close to getting ghetto for, uh, forming. When we talk about inclusivity, for example, meaning regardless of religion, sexual preference, cultural background, color of skin, everything, maximum inclusivity, whether you're challenged in any way, uh, physically or mentally, you want to be inclusive. Inclusivity for me has to be diverse. I'm taking this example on purpose. If I am handicapped in some way, the way that I will become part of society is, yes, I may need some special equipment or some special training or maybe even specialized education depending on the degree of my challenge, not handicap. However, if you speak to any person that has they want to be part of it. They don't want to feel that. They already deal with this obstacle every mm -hmm. day of their life, whether it's mental or physical. So in urban planning, in city design, inclusivity for us means being part of something, right? And that for me, I have a, just a natural tendency to then move away from boxes and thinking inside boxes and frameworks, but creating diversity and the buildup of a city will always have its functional aspects versus its social, as I mentioned, versus educational, right? For example, you know, your primary school, you want it close to home, maybe even, yeah, your nursery and your primary school. But, you know, going to college is also something cool that you want to go. But let's say if you took in, in UK all the universities that are cool, they are also cool. Let's say Harvard is cool because it's in, or Oxford is cool because it's in this town and it has a history behind it versus some of the more modern institutes, Silicon Valley kind of like, yeah, Silicon Valley is in a way also a cluster. That's the thing, right? Because we're really talking yeah. about a micro level yeah. in, within a city in a sense that already exists mm -hmm. on a macro level of cities. So it's Silicon Valley, Frankfurt, these are cities that are really based on the technology entrepreneur hubs of that country and then another city will have another function yeah. and another city will have another function. Are we not just talking about bringing that kind of cross-functionality within a city to make it more compact? So, so if you look at, for example, administrative, like in Kuala Lumpur, they had Putrajaya, but I'd like to see how many government buildings ended up there because mm -hmm. they created a new city what's supposed to be become capital or the administrative capital. But things work differently in reality because yeah. you have national um, government, local, regional. When you sort of take apart the building blocks of, of a city, right, from the larger chunks to the smaller little bits, it's going to always break down into the recipe of the cake, right? Your sugar and your flour and... There's still the basic things that you need to bake a cake. So in a city, there are the basic things that you need, your transport, education, healthcare, residence, and people choose their work differently. So yes, sure, 
in a natural way and creating an opportunity for that clustering is always going to take place. Mm-hmm. However, I again find the interesting is in the interfaces and the transitions. So I find preconceived clustering only successful or useful to a certain degree. Functionality, for example. Like I said, transport oriented development. If you build a train station versus with with a bus and electric transport, then naturally there's going to be a waiting time to switch transport mode. That's an opportunity where people like to have a Starbucks. When there's a Starbucks there, they love to have a restaurant. When they meet up before or after, it grows into these little communities. And that is a cluster by itself. And this is very organic. I don't know, maybe, and this is probably personal more than anything else. I Maybe that's just my personality that I don't like things to be put into boxes or to be preconceived. I'd like to nudge things in the right direction. I'd like to create opportunity, for sure, for work, for diversity, for nature. But just to say, I I find it a little bit dangerous to saying, okay, we need to build hubs the same way that we call a smart city a smart city. I get you. Yeah, no. It's a bit of a trap. It's full. It's fine. it, it, It can be done for all the right reasons with the best intent. But I feel as soon as you start to box things in, or cluster in mm-hmm. this case, there is something to be said functional in a functional way because it makes it easier. But you were giving an example like, okay, you can go five minutes to work. So you're already aligning your complete life towards your work. That's how it feels to me. No, but not necessarily because I'm also saying your residential would be five minutes away from your work. So maybe you're, I think... In a sense, it's just that the home is always five minutes away and everything is, it depends what you consider the center of that hub. What is the sun to that solar system? Yeah. And see, you're the urban planner. So you tell me how you would design it and we do it that way. (laughs) But that's true. That's true. It's more like you could create it in a sense. And I think. Everybody's biased in some way. Because see, you said transportation because this idea was introduced to me at least from someone who's looking at it from a transportation perspective. First, but but of course, and that's how you have to think about it because you have to put certain things into boxes. You say, okay, where do I build the train station? Do I put it at King's Cross or do I put it in Oxford Circus? Which one am I choosing? And yeah. if it's a new train station, where is it connecting? How many stops do you have? But also, if you think about it functionality-wise, see, food is a really good example. Where do you want the bougie, fancy restaurants in the more upscale areas? If you have all the fitness companies, I say in quotes, in one area of town, then you're probably more likely to want to have the more health-conscious restaurants in that ta- part of town. And maybe you have more like gyms in that part of town or whatever. We were talking about data efficiency. You could also be a bit more efficient. Okay, the people who want to do these things are going to be based here. So I don't need to produce these kinds of food that no one's going to eat. I'm going to reduce my waste by planning it around the people who live here. And I'll have more gyms, so I'll accommodate this space more to fitness centers and to parks and these things. Whereas another part of town, maybe no one's ever going to go to the park. And now I'm not saying you don't have parks, but maybe you limit the size and scope of that park. So in a sense, you're making it more efficient to the need of the people. Yeah. Is so, that realistic? So, so No, so I think it's, uh, if you mentioned that this came from a transport planner, 
automatically the discussion will come to first and last mile. Yeah, of course. Where do you put those TODs, as mm -hmm. we call them, transport-oriented developments? Then it is, okay, but why is that hub there? Hub usually is there because an urban planner in the past already created a certain color exactly. palette. So chicken or egg, what you're saying right now, maybe I find it tricky because it's, I think it's really utopian mm -hmm. because a planner, when he starts with a blank canvas, is going to do bring in the guys who do the feasibility studies and either it's driven by a client that says, I want to have a residential slash hospitality or self-sufficient community. Usually it comes with the scale, right? If you have 10 hectare or one hectare or 100 hectare, you need to have certain basic facilities there based on population. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very, almost a mathematical calculation for it to be successful. Those are tried and tested on like the references we took. We compared London to Amsterdam to Dubai to anywhere else. And I guess Dubai is a good example, for example, because you have healthcare city. Mm -hmm. But do I take my wife to healthcare city? No. To go to the hospital? No, I don't. Do I see Wafi, Wafi Mall? So you have a cluster with a mall. I don't think that's the most successful mall we have. No. No. You go to the biggest one or the one that you're the most comfortable with? Yeah, and... a city center just around the corner. Booming mall. Why? Because I think there was an old town center that grew, that developed, mm -hmm. and then need for a mall came, and it worked. Then there was a plan to do a healthcare city with a mall, in location, location, location. I think everybody, most of the people there come to work there, mm -hmm. but they don't live there, which is, a, it's a cool mall huh, on the outside, but I don't think it has the critical mass there. So again, that's why I think it is a matter, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but it is a matter that you have to do the steps in the correct order. And sometimes there is a need or a requirement already, functionally, clustered. It could be organically, mm -hmm. like, for example, how Dubai started at the mouth of a river uh, on the Silk Route. So it was a strategic location. But again, that comes back to what? Functionality. Yeah. And, and that strategic requirement changes over time, right? Yeah. So that we don't need cities that are built around water anymore. I think like when you said healthcare, it's a really good point because, yeah, if it's emergency care, you want a hospital every whatever X number of ambulance minutes away, right? Yeah. But if you're thinking, I have a choice, I need to go for a procedure, you'll want to go to the best hospital with the best doctors. And that might be a city away. And now we come full circle back to technology. Yeah. In today's time... Everybody can find out what the, the most recent experiences mm -hmm. are of the last 20 people that went to a certain hospital. So yesterday's best hospital can be tomorrow's worst hospital yeah, yeah. because they had a bad night. So now our experience is driving also the success of a master plan or, and in this case, clustering it just for the purpose of clustering, it doesn't work anymore because we have maybe on one hand, certain hospitals are covered by a group. That's already very simple. That is a way of clustering already. But if your network is wide enough, you can still go all over the city. Now the rating will drive me. So the customer 
service and the level of quality of the procedures or whatever you have there, that, that is driving that experience. Mm. That will force you to come back. So I think full circle, you will come back to very, very primal evolutionary processes that happen. A city is a living and breathing organism that will move with its population. And yes, we influence it. We are like, we're sitting on a chessboard sometimes as planners, and we try to drive it in, like we talked about sustainability or sometimes economically, we try to drive it in a certain way. But over time, people are still going to find their mm. own way. A good example that we have when you have a street corner and there's a patch of green that you have to put a tree there, otherwise people will just cut that corner. Right. And that's just human nature. So if you don't design that in such a way that either you make it a curve or you put something physical there, or people will go and cut that corner. It's just the rule of, I don't know, what's the principle there? Rule of least resistance? Yeah, yeah, the road of least resistance, exactly. I think this is with building cities, building communities. You want a city to be healthy, vibrant, diverse, and... All as professionals we can Mm. do is try to see what the existing situation is and where we want it to be. And usually the KPIs to that are generally economic health, sustainability, the right mix of green, work-life balance. And then I think it will evolve and you Mm. correct your position. So it's never wrong to have a certain goal, long-term goal, And then you need to be able to correct your path by lessons learned, by trends, by, you know, technology is one of them. So we're not going to move away from the city model towards the hub model, I think, at least in your opinion. And Okay, fair. That's a fair point. And we have it on a, because Holland is small, we have what's called the Randstad. So we have a cluster of several cities Mm -hmm. around a green hub in the center of Holland. So what you see is population will move Mm. between the suburbs and the city centers with time and with trends, but it's there's only so much you can do to push that and drive that. There are also processes that that happen natural, like for example with East and West Berlin. East Berlin was the more communistic, old-fashioned, and that became like the artist hub. So the wall came down, and that became the hotspot, whereas it was the other way around. Okay, so. We touched on intra-city travel, but I mean, since we're talking about different cities still functioning as they do, what about inter-city travel, you know, going from Amsterdam to Maastricht? Yeah, very there? good. Yeah, yeah, perfect, yeah. perfect, <laughs> good. perfect. <laughs> so like from, from one city to another, going from Dubai to Riyadh, even so regionally, you could look at it from London to Paris. How do you foresee that going in the near future? Well, air travel is... Forget about, for a while, the autonomous part of it, but there are now airplanes with hydrogen fuel already. And, you know, now it's it's It'll a long way. It'll take time, yeah. It'll take time. But therefore, I think that uh, ground transport, like trains... So, you, actually, it's funny that you go back to... Of course, they tried the Hyperloop, but it's still not there. And all these things will come because it makes sense. These are all, all part of natural evolution mm-hmm. of the type of transport Mm -hmm. uh, and the infrastructure that goes along with it. And of course, we want to get from A to B faster and more comfortable. 
whether it's logistics or as a person, you want it to be comfortable, you don't want to have like the pressure of high-speed travel. These are all functional things that are being solved right now. So I think Hyperloop or a version of it will be there. And it actually doesn't really matter whether you go with a conventional train or you go with the Hyperloop. It's just a more advanced way of getting from A to B. Mm. And therefore, I think eventually everything will be connected. You still have water to overcome. So we'll have faster boats or we'll go by air still conventionally. So I I don't really expect major revolutionary changes in that unless air travel becomes so affordable that indeed your personal car will become a hovercraft Mm -hmm. and eventually an airplane. So we don't need roads anymore. What about underground? Elon Musk, you mentioned a couple of times, the boring company. Yeah, the boring company, very affordable. Uh, I mean, I think he is so fast, his brain works so fast that he's just 20 years ahead. So you know, maybe in 20 years, the same way that we were talking about total recall in yeah. the 80s, uh, make it 30, you know, by 2050, you have flying Toyotas, and, you know, affordable means of transport. But mass transport is always going to stay, whether it's by air or by land or by water. And it's just going to be more advanced. Even if you look at the futuristic movies and references, they're even if there's an air corridor, there's always going to be corridors. Maybe right. we don't have streets anymore, but again, that's the natural you, I way. I mean, of course you do. Even, for example, with drones in Singapore, especially, they have air corridors for drones. So you can only fly them yeah. within these parameters. You cannot just go over any building you want. No. That's illegal. Uh, no, but then it, you'll get, it will be a mess. You will get crashes of course all over you will. the place. Yeah, yeah. No, okay. So air travel will probably be predominant between cities unless you don't foresee trains becoming more of a... Because we talked about it a bit, right? It's sometimes easier to go by train. And do you think there's like a time limit where, okay, if it's more than two hours by flights? Well, okay, let's let's take um, uh, London, Calais. So we already went through the North Sea in a tunnel and public transport allows that. So you can imagine that eventually maybe there'll be tunnels through oceans mm-hmm. because the city fabric... Basically, every built rural area, there's so much already underground going on that's going to take a lot of cost to repurpose and refit and retrofit everything. So maybe Musk's way of just digging a tunnel underneath all of that is a very fast and efficient. I mean, that was his intent anyways. It's a fast way to do it. So plausible, yeah. But? No, no buts. Plausible, but? No buts. It's just, it has a very high capex. You've seen it with the Hyperloop. That is really, it needs to be really carried. And then it still becomes subjective to political agenda and drive to get it through. Which it always does. It always does. In certain aspects, we are an incubation area of new things. And in other aspects, in the end, we need to also think about the common person for us normal people, things will not go as fast. So for me, a metro or, yeah, just a carbon-friendly way of transport is already good. Of course, we will have autonomic buses. We already do. Yeah, yeah. Mosdar and everything. So it will be, so let's say that public transport will just become cleaner. And then I think air travel will stay air travel. Okay. 
We touched a bit on sustainability as well. Obviously, in a lot of European cities and a lot of regional cities, there's more and more focus on implementing renewable energy into the city structure. There's exciting concepts that are coming around. I don't know if you saw the design that it got a lot of hype. I don't know. Some people thought it was real. The circle that, that was done for Dubai. Yeah, 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 Dubai yeah. Circle. I saw that, yeah. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Just curious, I mean, before anything else, what are your thoughts on this kind of design? I think it was not a far stretch. Okay. I mean, for just human nature is to test boundaries. Mm -hmm. Would we have expected 20, 30 years ago that the Burj Khalifa would have been uh, the highest tower in the world for now? To have such a central business district that is so so dense and populated, to then look up to the skies and we, since you've already, I mean, that circle is still around, let's say 40, 40 to sixty stories there yeah, yeah. is average. So to place something, and we have already several buildings with sky bridges, so I don't find it a very far stretch. So yeah, so you still got your cluster there. But that's what I'm saying. That's what I, <laughs> see, I, I was just waiting for you to accept that clusters are acceptable. <laughs> no, but because I, I think the concept of self-sustaining cities is something that sometimes people have sort of anti-globalism mindsets when you say something like self-sustaining. And we're not really talking about you'll still have to import and export certain things and diversity of people and cultures will obviously need. And a city like Dubai will always exist. But in terms of just being able to manage resources, so self-sustaining in terms of resources. That's, that's perfect. So listen, of course, we have a huge carbon footprint. Things like hydrophonic farming or vertical farming mm. um, or just urban farming. When, I, when there is an opportunity for urban farming, like you see in sustainable cities and in more in new developments, I love it. Don't you love right. to yeah. grow some crops, some tomatoes in your garden? We have some cherry tomatoes at home. Yeah, some yeah. green chilies, some basil exactly. and herbs. Yeah, yeah. Self-sustainable. Sustainable development is good. It's needed because we're, it came from the doom scenarios. And it's not a doom scenario. It's actual reality that we're wasting our planet away. But to a very core level, it's also part of human nature. Mm -hmm hunter-gatherer kind of stuff. So it, don't, you, don't you love building a campfire, very primal things and growing some crops? And so I think self-sustainability, maybe also there is a psychological aspect to that. Having self-sustainable cities, you know, just sustainable cities is something very important. And I think it comes back to what we were talking about. What do you like to do in your free time? What is a good work balance for you? Being out in nature is very healthy for you. Growing your crops is something very, mm -hmm. it's very productive for yourself. It's healthy. It's almost like a no-brainer. There's, yeah, yeah. there, there's only win, right? So I think when you talk about self-sustainability, the bigger ticket items are indeed, like we said, with our development being completely 100% reliable on solar energy. Mm -hmm. As a new development for Red Sea, just coming back close to home to my own work, creating more than 120,000 jobs for Saudis, having a development that brings, I think, 33 billion in revenue to the economy. So doing something economical, doing something that gives back to nature, mm -hmm. in our case, the 30% that we talk about, having a fantastic experience and, you know, very technologically advanced. So we have everything is there, like the, the electronic vehicles, 
to we talked about okay we talked about hubs so the guest experience checking in we hope eventually that you'll have an app on your phone that you will book a location on one of our assets and that you will hand in your luggage where you get on board the airplane and that your bag arrives is there waiting for you so that our hotels and resorts us as a as a group we can focus on your customer experience from arriving at the airport the airport itself already being a very cool design natural you literally park your plane into the terminal into the green so as soon as you open and you walk out of the plane you're already arriving in a garden then having wow. the trip through the dunes and to the coast then having your boat ride it's it's all part of an adventure and then arriving in a, a whole palette of different types of destinations to your flavor whether you want something modern or more something ecological or natural it's all there so that journey is something that we want to improve again it's coming back to creating a good customer experience and something that that makes life easier back to the smart again well but that's the thing i think it was important to define it in the beginning because it was useful but yeah the luggage thing you'll have me for sure if that's doable it, it makes such a huge difference because not having to wait at the baggage claim not worrying about your luggage being lost if the airline can handle that and then obviously the last mile delivery services in the terminal can handle that that's that's a huge yeah. metric <laughs> any last things any last thoughts anything our audience should be aware of or we should look out for um, coming up you gave me a flashback to hot ones where you say the last minute is for you this camera this camera this that camera, camera this camera <laughs> that's exactly what that is <laughs> uh, which i'm going to shamelessly pitch the red sea obviously I joined in January, mm -hmm. very proud to be part of the Red Sea Global. We've got three assets coming online uh, very soon this year. We're going to start domestic flights very soon. And over the next, this year and the next, Amala is also coming online. In total, we'll have 75 hotels. What I really love is that we're going to have 8,000 keys at the Red Sea and 3,000, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, 3,000 at Amarla. But we're going to cap the visitor numbers at 1 million for for the Red Sea, half a million for Amarla. So that really it's, it feels like so exclusive. Mm. Uh, you know, and we'll have the ultra luxury, but also the affordable. So it's in a bucket list destination. And again, in all those aspects, keeping it to a minimum. So even controlling how many people can actually enjoy it at one stage is something fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm very privileged. I would like to thank you for, you know, inviting me. It's always great to chat with you and Same to catch here. up. We've been meeting each other at conferences for years now. Yeah. And to just do a deep dive today is, uh, is a fantastic pleasure. And well, I personally hope to welcome you at the Turtle Bay Hotel one day. Soon, hopefully. To show you around, for <laughs> so sure. So when can anyone just visit? And um, there are already opportunities okay. to actually book. At scale, though, when would it be? At scale, so we already have this, the St. Regis and the Ritz-Carlton, the Six Senses, Southern Juice coming online this summer. And by the end of the year, I think 
I have to be a little bit careful with... Uh, no, it's fine if you can't share, <laughs> share deadlines. No, 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 I can, I can, I can. But so what I can say is that, again, we will start this year, we will start domestic flights. Mm-hmm. Um, next year, we will start international flights. Okay. And Dubai will be the first Interesting. Uh, on the list. But eventually, our airport will be able to bring anybody from anywhere in the world within eight hours. For 80, 85% of the world will wow. be reachable to our destination. So that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Time, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Okay. Perfect. Marlon, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. It was fun. Thank I, you. Wish, I wish we had another couple of hours to go. Yeah, yeah. We can always have you back <laughs> thank in, a you few, very in much. a few months or in a year's time. So yeah, thanks. Thanks.